are in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. I would ask you, do you remember? Do you remember what this book is about? Paul was in prison, probably in Rome, and uh, he had a uh, time enough to write what we know today as the four prison epistles, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Um, what would you do if you were in prison? Today, if you're in prison, you work out in the weight room and you watch TV and get three squares. Back in the old days, it wasn't like that. Some, sometimes, if somebody didn't bring you food, you'd starve to death unless you could uh, borrow from your neighbor. And so he's writing, and uh, it's remarkable that in this particular passage, as in Paul, all of Paul's epistles, they start out with theology and end in practice, because unless your thinking is right, your behavior uh, won't be right. If your theology is wrong, your practice will be wrong. So in all of Paul's epistles, you have theology before you have practice. So when you get to the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians, you have uh, a series of commands. It's very difficult to preach a passage where all it is is advice giving, you know, because then you, you come across as a preacher as just preaching at people instead of helping everyone to process through what they need to. So what I want to do this morning is I want to go through these series of uh, commands that Paul has and explain them in a very concrete way and how it relates to where we are uh, as uh, Christians living in the 21st century. So if you would please uh, uh, bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks this morning that we can come before your word, even for a brief time, that it would uh, cleanse us just as you told the disciples, um, Father, that uh, uh, your word uh, w was cleansing. We pray that you would help us in these minutes just to humble ourselves and place ourselves under the word of God and not over it, that it would speak to us and convict us and to cleanse us, uh, Father, from our unrighteousness and our walk with you would be better because we came today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren and my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Eudia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. I just want to stop there for a minute. Uh, have you ever known two people in the church that did not get along? Why are you smiling? Did you ever know two people in the church not to get along? Have you ever walked up this aisle because you saw somebody in this aisle? 
Have you ever sat back there because the person you didn't want to face was sitting up here? Or you worked with someone and you requested of Nikki or Pastor to go into another children's class so you wouldn't have to deal with that person over there. Or somebody said something to you, and while the preacher is preaching, instead of cleansing yourself and praying God forgiveness, you sat there and stewed because there was somebody else in the church that hurt you. Paul is in prison. He doesn't say, my circumstances are terrible in prison here. Would you please pray for me? Uh, because, you know, the meals aren't good. The Roman guards are mistreating us. He says to this, you're my joy and crown. And would you please tell Judea and Syntyche that they need to get along? Um, it's difficult when we live in a very human world and people are flawed and they're not quite as perfect as we are. <clears throat> he begs them for unity. To live above with the saints we love, ah, that's the purest glory. To live below with the saints we know, ah, that's another story. How dare we criticize our joy and crown? The Bible says we're one body in Christ and we're criticizing one another and hindering maybe even somebody else's ministry when, in fact, they're our joy and our crown. In 1740, George Whitfield, the famous evangelist, came to Yale University or Yale College. There were 45 students then at Yale. 45. It was a theological college. And the revival, the Great Awakening was coming on America. And you know what there was at Yale? The old light people and the new light people. Old light, new light. Contemporary worship music, old hymns, uh, modern conversational preaching, old fire and brimstone preaching. George Whitfield came, one of the greatest missionaries in American history. His name was Brainerd. David Brainerd was there. And he was a new light person. And he called... He said that the president of Yale had no more spirituality than that chair. And he got dismissed, even though he repented of it, they got rid of him. Thank goodness they got rid of him because he, he did uh, a great work among the American Indians and he realized that he really didn't need uh, theological education to win people for Christ. But hey, listen, for hundreds of years, it's still the same. We got Judea and Syntyche. Would you please get along in the Lord? Now, we don't have to actually uh, like what somebody is doing. We don't have to be agreeable to their personality. They talk too much. They talk too loud. They're from New York. 
Paul says, if you look at the text, he says that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Hey, listen, it's for the children's ministry. It's not about you fixating on that other person because they are the way that they are. Paul did not say some things. He didn't say in this passage, um, would you please tell either uh, Udia or Syntyche to find another ministry? He didn't say, uh, could you get the pastor to talk to these women? Uh, get them into counseling? He didn't say... Um, <clears throat> Sit on the other side of the church if you can't get along. He didn't say expose their weakness or have a gossip session with your wife or your husband because they, did you see how they can't get along? <clears throat> he didn't say uh, conceal their weakness either, obviously, because he's writing a circular letter. An epistle is a circular letter after it hit Philippi. It probably went over to... Uh, Troy and down into Asia Minor and probably got circulated. How'd you like your name plastered amongst all the churches in the region? Would you please tell Yudia and Syndagi to get along? By the way, get Clement in there and you help them too, yoke fellow, whoever the yoke fellow person was in the text. <clears throat> we should have unity before we have activity. Unfortunately, in the church, we need workers. We need workers in the nursery. We need workers at Juana's. We need workers in the youth group. We need workers, workers, workers. And we want activity before we have unity. But the scriptures here say, Paul says, would you please get these two women to get along? And then in the next passage, he talks about the activity. In verse 3, if you look at it, I urge you also, true companion, we don't know who the true companion is. He isn't named here. <clears throat> Help those women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow yoke workers, who, uh, fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. <clears throat> now, he's telling this individual, this yoke fellow, um, old word, fellow minister, somebody who's active, get Clement, work with these women. Now, if uh, one of the staff members came and asked you to do a job and there was two women over there, or let's just say two men over here, and they didn't get along and you knew it and everybody else knew it, and the pastor asked you to go and help them and work with them, what would you be inclined to say? Pastor, I'm busy on Tuesday nights. I'm sorry, I can't do that. Pastor, do you know those, those women, they can't get along. I'm just miserable when I work with them. Wouldn't we? Or if we didn't have so much boldness to actually tell the pastor or tell uh, Jonathan or the superintendent of the school or whatever to actually speak the truth, we would think in our mind, I don't want to work with them because they can't get along. And the reality is, Paul says, first of all, you should have unity before activity, and then you should help them, even though they have a history. Now, who here doesn't have a history? Now, if you are 
not Judea and Syntyche of the 21st century right here in this place who walks up one aisle because you don't want to walk up the other aisle. You're probably in the other camp that you don't want to be a helper to the person who is actually doing the work. You would rather be a spectator because I don't want to get involved in their mess over there. We, uh, we're bold as Americans, except when it comes to actually saying to somebody in, in a gentle, kind, loving, and ushering in all the love we possibly can to go over to somebody and say, you know, I've been noticing, you, Judy, you're not getting along with Syntyche very well. Um, is there anything I can do to help your situation? How about if I come in there and help you guys work a little bit? That's a hard thing and it requires a lot of maturity because you have to die to yourself and you know exactly what you're getting into and you have intention about bringing healing to the situation and not going to gossip about it on the side. So if you look at the text, it moves um, from unity to activity and that activity requires some grace. We want grace applied to us if, if we're in a situation like that, but if it actually requires us giving grace to somebody else, it's much more difficult and because we have to make uh, adjustment. And then Paul makes this very interesting comment that's t- usually ripped out of its context and plastered in a, a, a little worship ditty, you know, uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I'd sing it for you, but I don't want to clear the sanctuary here. Why did he put it right here? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I can remember I was, I was uh, uh, 10 years old at Word of Life Bible Institute, and there was some speaker. I don't hardly remember anything about that week there, uh, except that the kids in the cabin tormented me. But that man led every single day that song, Rejoice in the Lord Always, and he spoke every single day for a week. I heard a sermon on this, so I memorized this verse as a 10-year-old. But it comes after Paul's admonition about people not getting along because there's nothing worse that'll kill the joy in a church if people don't get along because you don't want to go to church because you have to face that person or see that person, that person who hurts you. And maybe you have a reservoir. It's been built up for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. Somebody hurt you. Or they saw, you saw somebody, the pastor, the former pastor, or the former, former, former pastor, uh, or the church board, or the superintendent, and I, trust me, I am not above anybody else, and somebody may be here and I've hurt you, you need to come and talk to me about it. Um, if, I, if you've hurt me, I've probably already talked to you. Uh, uh, I don't want to get, I don't want that stuff buried in my life. And, but we tend to do that. I'm not saying uh, today I'm clean, but next week I might not be because I might be burying something, right? And we tend to harbor things in this collection vault deep inside of us that nobody can unlock where we nurture our bitterness towards other people. And Paul says, get along at, at unity before activity, and then it's time to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And sometimes we can't rejoice because we have a history of accumulated um, uh, observation about disunity, and it's, it's 
uh, tumultuous inside of us. And so we carry it around with us. I don't like the music. I don't agree, agree with the way the school is run. You know, the person who's doing the, the upward or the facilities management. Uh, uh, and as a result, we avoid people and we pester them and criticize them and talk behind their back. And especially with my spouse, we become a gossip session and, and uh, mutual sympathy towards criticism. And we slip in the destructive comment in the back door and text somebody our sarcasm or take a picture and email it and, and type out a little something and just hit send um, unconsciously because it's become such a part of our life that we communicate this disruptive um, dismantling of other people's ministry and our frustration. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It is not about those two people that can't get along. It is not about those two people that can't get along. Do you hear me? It is not about those two people that can't get along and the history that lies somewhere there. It's a conscious decision that a Christian makes to say we live in a fallen world and that person over there has sin and that person over there has sin and they might not be able to get along, but I'm going to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say I'm going to rejoice always. Now, in our culture, we don't teach Christianity that has resolve that we are going to be joyful in the midst of difficult circumstances. Because, after all, there's so many churches. You know, if you were in France, and you were a Christian in France, and you were in a small town, there might be an evangelical church within 30 or 40 miles, and you didn't have any other choice but to go there or stay home. So what are you going to do, just stay home? Here, when we don't like what happens, we go. Rather than deciding, I am going to be a, a disciple that resolves to rejoice in spite of what's going on around me. I'm going to rise above it. I'm going to text happy things. I'm going to tweet. I'm not going to twerp. I'm going to tweet. <clears throat> I'm going to cover the mistakes of others. I'm not going to talk about that other person there to my spouse. You know, one of the greatest things in, in, in the ministry is when somebody tells my wife something and she says to me, why didn't you tell me that? I didn't tell you that because I didn't want you to have carry that burden of negativity the way I have to carry it. And I don't want her to look at somebody else in the church uh, or their children because I observed something or I saw something. I want to keep my wife clean of the burden that I, that I carry. Occasionally, I have to unload because it's too much for me to bear, and that's why God gave her to me. But generally speaking, I don't want her to have to bear that. And when somebody comes and tells my wife something and she says to me, why didn't you tell me that? I say, uh to myself, well, I tried for a little while to keep it from her, but obviously she learned uh, something that she, I wish she never would have known. Uh, 
It's hard to remain joyful when our focus is on what conflict exists right or left. But you have to decide. You know, when you get out of your car out here in the parking lot or up there or in the lower parking lot, when you get out and that door closes, you say to yourself, I'm going into that sanctuary and there's joy in front of me. And it's not going to be about this person or that person over there. It's going to be about what God is going to do. Amen? I'm sure these halls, these hallowed halls, have seen some conflict. What church exists for 80, how long has this church been around? 80 years, that doesn't have some kind of skeletons in the baptistry or closet or whatever. And if uh, I've heard some of them, but I don't really care. Because when I arrive, I say, I'm going to rejoice today in what's in front of me and not what's behind me. Our church isn't what it used to be, though, Dan. Our church isn't what it used to be. You know, there are circumstances always around you that can cast light in negativity. Uh, Henry Longfellow, um, during the Civil War, had an older son named Charles Longfellow. He joined the Union Army but didn't tell his father because his father was against it. Uh, He got a letter from his father in 1863, and he says, I've tried hard to resist the temptation of going without your leave, that is, without saying where I was going, but I can't any longer. I feel it to be my first duty to do what I can for my country, and I would willingly lay down my life for it if it, if it would be of any good. This man, Charles Longfellow, uh, got an appointment as a uh, lieutenant, and he was wounded. The first thing that happened is he got wounded uh, in the Battle of New Hope Church in Virginia in the Mine Run campaign. At the same time, Wadsworth lost his wife in a uh, random fire. What do you think he did? He wrote these words. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar's carol play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men, and thought how as the day had come the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered from the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearth stones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong will fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Do we have the ability 
to ring the bells of God and rejoice in the Lord always in spite of job loss, family problems, uh, friends who betray us, conflicts at work, financial issues. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And then in this fifth verse, what does he say? Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. You know what happens when there's conflict? We don't get very gentle, do we? Um, uh, I can be um, quite blunt. Um, And uh, probably um, as my tenure here goes on, um, you tend to see the faults of other people, right? And uh, the cruelty with which we can castigate somebody for their foibles and their inability to get along uh, is only a reflection of how little we understand about the grace of God because we are in need of just as much grace as those people over there, whatever uh, they've done. And... uh, I've had a difficult time in my life learning to curb my criticism of others and realizing just how flawed I am as a person. This week, um, Nelson Mandela died. Everybody saw that probably, right? 27 years in prison he served. 27 years in prison. Uh, When he got out, was he angry and bitter? Eventually, he won the election, and uh, South Africa hosted the World Rugby Championships. Now, rugby is a white-dominated sport, highly racist. And so, um, all the world's rugby teams had come to South America, and you know what Nelson Mandela did? He put on the jersey... of white supremacy and went to the rugby match. He put on a jersey for a team that was known for being anti-black and decided that he was going to celebrate his country's rugby team and not export the bitterness of 27 years in prison. Paul, in prison, tells the people of Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. What would most of us do if we got power after 27 years of being tormented by somebody else who really harmed us? I was, watch, I was listening to... Um, Uh, NPR radio, they were talking about Nelson Mandela's life and and what he did. And the word that the the commentator used was magnanimous, gracious. Um, And you know what the country did when Nelson Mandela put on the shirt of of, uh, the jersey, the rugby jersey of a white supremacist? 
the whole country united around their rugby team. And, and uh, the black majority and the white minority rejoiced together as the South Africans won the Rugby World Cup. You might have 27 years of anger and bitterness towards somebody, uh, maybe in this church, maybe outside this church, um, but you need to put on their jersey and say, I will support you in your work, even though sometimes I don't like the way you do it. <clears throat> you know why? Because in verse 5, it says this. If you look carefully at the text, it says, the Lord is at hand. Sometimes we talk about people and we don't realize that the Lord is at hand. <clears throat> and then the text moves on to prayer and it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. This verse is often ripped out of context too. Sometimes there's anxiety when there's things not at right in church. The staff laughs at me because I have a standing joke. One of my great angering moments when I get the most frustrated and angry at church is when I or whoever is leading the prayer meeting says, do we have any prayer requests? I go into a crisis because I say to myself, oh no, here we go again. Prayer request time. I'm going to hear about Aunt Bertha and her ailments. I'm going to hear ailment prayers. It's not about what people are anxious about, be anxious for nothing. It's about a report time about people's health issues or traveling mercies. Listen, Paul didn't give a grocery list of all the issues that he had while he was in prison. What is prayer? Prayer is communicating what really bothers us. Every morning we have we ask, I ask for prayer requests, and occasionally I get something at the school that resembles something that makes somebody anxious in their heart. Um, my kids aren't getting along. My child might get a divorce. Um, I, I don't have mo uh, money to pay my rent. Rarely do I ever see tears. And I will tell you, even though I'm saying this, I'll be in prayer meeting on Wednesday night, and I'll hear the same thing, or on Sunday... When there's prayer requests, why? Because we don't talk about what's anxious in our lives. We want to report somebody else's issues rather than what turmoil exists in my life and my heart. Be anxious for nothing, but by everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. If we talk about what, what, is, what creates anxiety in our lives and we resolve to present it before God, that's when prayers are answered. One of my favorite books in all the world, uh, somebody in this church laughs at me because they said to me once, does he have to be dead to be good? 
Well, uh, Charles Finney's uh, memoirs. He was an unconverted man. He went to church every week. He was miserable. He was miserable with his life. And this is what he says. Indulge me. It's going to take two minutes for me to read this. Three minutes. It's a story about a man in church before he's converted, how he looks at other people's prayers. Uh, I was particularly struck with the fact that prayers that I listened to in their prayer meetings from week to week were not, that I could see, answered. Indeed, I could readily understand by their continued prayers and by the remarks they made in their meetings that they did not regard their prayers as answered. When I read my Bible... When I read my Bible, I learned what Christ had said in regard to prayer and answers to prayer. He said, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find and knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives and he that seeks finds and to him that knocks it will be opened. I read also what Christ affirms that Christ is more willing to give his Holy Spirit to them that ask him than earthly parents are to give good gifts to their children. I heard them pray continually for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and as often and often confessed their leanness, that they did not receive what they asked for. They exhorted each other to to wake up and be engaged and to pray earnestly for revival, asserting that if they did their duty, praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and were in earnest that the Spirit of God would be poured out, that they would have a revival, and that we who were impotent would be converted, impenitent. But uh, in their prayer and conference meetings, they would continually confess substantially that they were making no progress in prayer or effort or in the securing of revival. Their inconsistency with their professions, the fact that they prayed so much and were not answered was a sad stumbling block to me. I knew not what to make of it. It was a question in my mind whether I was to understand that these persons were not truly Christians and therefore did not prevail with God. Here was something inexplicable to me, and it seemed at one time as if it would almost drive me into a state of skepticism. It seemed to me that the teachings of the Bible did not at all accord with the facts that were before my eyes. On one occasion, when I was in one of their prayer meetings, I was asked if I did not desire that they should pray for me. I told them no because I did not see that God answered their prayers. I said, quote, I suppose I need to be prayed for, for I am conscious that I'm a sinner, but I do not see that it will do any good for you to pray for me. For you are continually asking, but do not receive. You've been praying for a revival of religion since I've been in Adam's, and yet you uh, have it not. You've been praying for the Holy Spirit to descend upon yourselves, and yet complaining of your leanness. Uh, You've prayed enough since I've attended these meetings to have prayed the devil out of Adam's. If there is any virtue in your prayers, but here you are praying on and complaining still. But on further reading of my Bible, it struck me that the reason why their prayers were not answered was because they did not comply with the revealed conditions upon which God promised to answer prayer, that they did not pray in faith in the sense of expecting God to give them the things that they asked for. I saw that there were many conditions revealed in the Bible upon which prayer was to be answered, 
and appeared to be altogether overlooked by them. He goes on to say that prayer and the lack of answers to prayer kept him from the faith. But he read his Bible, and he knew that the Bible was true, and so what he saw in the Bible had to be true, even if he did not see it in his fellow, uh, not his fellow Christians, but at that time, as the Christians of the church. And that's where we are here in this passage. We're anxious about things, and Paul says that we should pray for them, the things that bring anxiety into our lives, and, and yet we, we ask for prayer for travel, that somebody would arrive safely. Well, yeah, maybe that's one thing. Sure. My daughter left yesterday for the Congo, the Republic of Congo. Look it up, how much AIDS there is and all of that. I'm not going to pray that she gets there safely. Her, 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 her picture on Facebook and the joy in her life, she says, I can't wait to get to the Congo. I pray that God does something in her life and whatever shackles there are there would be fall away in their life and, and that she would be a blessing to others, but not that she'll just arrive safely. Hello, is that what it's about, travel? Is it about our ailments or that God would strengthen us by his spirit in the inner man that the things that are just burdening us and we're anxious about, that he would empower us and we would actually pray, believing that he would actually do something. I pray that the smile that she left with is a smile she comes home with. That God would do something in her life. Friends, when somebody says, do we have any prayer requests? I hope, and I know after 20 years of teaching and preaching this same thing in churches, I have never, ever, ever seen a congregation change, even my own. Because we insist to talk about things that are trivial and not the things that are important. And when others who are unbelievers who look at us and they say, does God answer their prayers? Not that I can tell. But the God that I know, when I prevail with him and believe and expect him, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find and knock and it shall be open unto you. When people have a resolve to come before God and grab hold of the, the legs of the throne of, of grace and come before Jesus, who's an advocate with the Father, their prayers are answered because they have resolve, because they believe that God is a good God and he gives good gifts to those that ask him. Whatever conflicts are out there, whatever hardships, whatever people are uh, disturbing you, you need to rejoice and you need to pray the things that give you anxiety, believing that God is actually going to answer them. Uh, we expect peace. Um, I want to just jump ahead and close with this. The peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and mind on Christ Jesus. Um, we leave the door open in our lives. And in Corey Ten Boom's words, we leave the circle open. In other words, we have this, our life is mostly together except for this little thing over here that allows the devil to pour in things in our life. 
Um, Jeannie Arp gave this book to my wife, and we've been reading through it. We got to this passage yesterday, and I thought, wow, that's uh, just exactly what I'm preaching on, that we need to close the circle in our lives, and whatever that is over there, we need to come before God and say, no, I'm not going to let this or that distract me from the prayer that I need to, with supplication and thanksgiving, that is, I'm going to thank God for the sovereign uh, purposes of bringing this into my life. Uh, She says this, Having thus learned so close, uh, I'm sorry, learned to close the circle by confessing my sins, I wish I could say that ever since uh, then the circle has remained closed in my life. It is not so. For since Satan comes against us so often, then it is necessary to confess often. Also, regardless of how old a person is, may be, or how long he has ministered in the name of Jesus Christ that men still need to confess their sins again and again and ask forgiveness. This truth came painfully clear to me recently when I was invited to Washington, D.C. to speak to a luncheon of businessmen and women. I love to talk to businessmen and was very excited about the meeting. When I arrived, however, I found only women present. This upset me. for I felt that men needed to hear the message of forgiveness also. After the meeting, a fine-looking lady came up to me. I'm in charge of arranging the program for a world convention of our ladies' group, she said. Some of the most influential women of the world will be present. Would you come speak to us in San Francisco? I was still miffed that no man had been present for my luncheon. It's not that I disprove of women's meetings, but I'm concerned when men leave the spiritual activity to women. God is calling men. Thus, I gave her a short, discourteous answer. Nope, I will not. I must speak to men also. I don't like this business of all women. She was very gracious. Don't you feel that you are the right person, she asked? No, I said, I'm not the right person. I do not like this American system where men go about their business leaving the women to act like Christians, I will not come. I turned and walked away. Later that afternoon, I was in my room packing uh, to catch the plane. The Lord began dealing with me. You were very rude to that woman, he told me. I argue with the Lord, but Lord, I feel that your message is for all people, not just for women. You were very rude to that woman, he said again gently. He was right, of course. He always is. I had been speaking on forgiveness, but was unwilling to ask forgiveness for myself. I knew I was going to have to go to that gracious woman and apologize, confess my sin. Until I did, the circle would be open in my life, and Satan would be pouring in many other dark thoughts as well. I looked at my watch. I saw I only had enough time to finish my packing and get to the airport, It made no difference. If I left Washington without closing the circle, I would be no good anywhere else. I would just have to miss my plane. I called the front desk, found which room the woman was in, then I went to her room. I must ask your forgiveness, I said, as she opened the door. I spoke to you rudely. She was embarrassed and tried to pass it off. Oh, no, she said, you were not unkind. I understand perfectly. I too feel that men should be the spiritual leaders, not women. She was returning my unkindness with kindness, but that is not what I needed. 
I needed for her to admit that I was wrong about not speaking to women and forgive me. I know it is often more difficult to forgive than to ask forgiveness, but it is equally important. This sensitive woman understood, reaching out and tenderly touching my hand, she said, I understand, Tante Cory. I forgive you for your remarks about women's groups, and I forgive you for being unkind to me. That was what I needed to hear. In the future, I would indeed speak to women's groups. I would also keep a watch on my lips when tempered to speak unkindly. I missed my plane, but the circle was closed. When it comes to church life, our malfunctions um, with people hinder the ministry at every turn. Our criticisms, our, their failures, people's failures, our own failures. And when the circle of unforgiveness and anger and disappointment and criticism is left open. Um, the Lord takes his Holy Spirit off of us and we are not as effective as we could otherwise be if in fact we would go to those people and ask forgiveness and stop our criticism and ask the Lord to heal us of our anger. Um, I would just ask you in closing to close your circle. Uh, if there's somebody that you have targeted in your life um, and uh, oriented your criticism toward, um, that you decide to ask their forgiveness. That you would um, speak to them kindly. That you would even, as Paul told the Philippians, to help the very women who seem not to be able to get along and Clement, whoever he was. And that um, you would resolve to rejoice in spite of the fact that these people around you are human and can't really do it the way that God maybe had hoped that they, that they would if they really were functioning in the Holy Spirit like they should. But that shouldn't determine what you do. You have to close your circle and God comes in and he fills you and does things that were never, ever, ever possible and that you couldn't ever dream would happen because you live a pure and holy life before him. Let's pray. Father, we uh, uh, thank you that we can come into your presence. Father, we pray that those people with whom we have a malfunctioning relationship and we maybe even observe from a distance and are critical about, that we, you would heal us of that. We pray that you would help us to rejoice in you, to be bold about our prayers, to come before you with thanksgiving and let our requests be made known unto you and we wouldn't be hindered by any kinds of, uh, of uncleanness in our own lives. 
Uh, I pray for those here who have difficult decisions to make because they retain uh, anger and bitterness and uh, against others who have hurt them or just even hurt people that they love and they didn't even hurt them but they hurt somebody else and uh, we pray that you would help us all to live with grace and love towards those around us and we pray these things in Jesus name Amen